Today I want to talk about God-given humility, and that's the topic. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6, a very familiar text we want to look at. We'll see how far we get. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read the text, the first 7, 8, or 9, 10 verses. We'll see. God-given humility. What we're going to do is emphasize God humbling his people at the point of regeneration and conversion. And then depending on how much time, talking about how that we grow in grace and he teaches us to be humble one with another, brothers and sisters in Christ, and even our enemies. Isaiah 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it on my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, I, here am I, send me. And he said, Go. And tell this people, hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, be converted and be healed. Stop the reading there. We want to see what... Believers see as they see texts like this and they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and they actually experience the word of God and it's applied to their life. In other words, sometimes when people talk about experiencing the word of God, you know, that could be a red flag because some of that language, if it's not explained, you know, it's, it's kind of charismatic or it could be mystical or whatever. But what, what I'm talking about, in other words, when God's elect sheep, his people, when God resurrects them from the spiritual deadness that they're in, gives them spiritual life through the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerates them, gives them faith and repentance, works it in them powerfully, doesn't offer it, he works it in them, and then they are able to spiritually and legitimately have a conscious awareness spiritually of what's taking place. They have an understanding, in other words. It's no guessing game. God reveals. He doesn't fail in revealing. He reveals through the means of the truth of the Word of God. And there's 
There's no somebody, you know, going off in this direction and with relative subjective truth saying, well, I see it this way. God reveals the truth. He's able and he's powerful enough and he does do that. The truth of God's gospel of his free and sovereign grace. So, in other words, there's a means involved. And the gospel is the means. Of course, the spirit must be there. The spirit is the one that gives life so that they can see the gospel. And then, of course, as it were after this person is born again and believes, there is the growth process. And the word of God is a means throughout the believer's life. Prayer is a means. Church fellowship is a means. Reading and studying on one's own, whether it be the scriptures or you know doctrinal studies and things like that. So one takes in the truth by the Spirit of God. The Spirit grows them in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, let me clarify and, and make a distinction that not many people make. I think you guys make it here. You can't start in a lie. You can't grow from a lie. A lie, a false gospel, there's nothing but death. And you can't grow from a lie. People that believe a false gospel are not baby Christians. God gives them the truth. They believe the gospel. Then they have the truth. And there's the ability to grow through the power of the Spirit, through the Word of God. So we need to make that distinction all the time. So these people, all God's people, we know that every believer in this growth experience, they believe the same gospel, as we said. They believe the same Christ, and they're indwelt by the same Spirit. And we know that every believer is different. They're different in a bunch of ways, but we could give an example. And when I say they're different, they're different in a lot of different things, but they, again, they believe the same gospel, same spirit, and their faith is in the same object of faith. But their general difference is given in the scripture, and you don't have to turn there, but you should be very familiar with this. Galatians 3, 28 and 29, Paul said, There is neither, notice the, the word that negates, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, because you are all one in Christ Jesus. It goes back to you're in union with Christ. He's your representative, substitute. All these other differences, whether you're Jew, Greek, black, white, culture differences, gender differences, and there's only two. There's all these things. They don't matter in Christ. Everybody's the same in Christ. So those distinctions are, are knocked out. It's on level playing ground. Everybody has the same righteousness imputed to them. They're accepted the same way because they're not accepted in their self. They're accepted in Christ. That's where the, that's the start. And then people grow. And of course, the scripture does teach in different places that God gives various gifts. People don't grow at the same speed. People are not converted at the same time. Maybe somebody's been converted 20 years and another person has converted three years and the one that's converted three years might be further along in their knowledge of the one that's been converted 20 years. God, This is God's business, how he works this. He gives them different gifts. We don't run that. God runs it. And he's determined these things from all eternity for his own glory and his purposes that we sometimes can't see. That's his business. He's sovereign. We're not. So we have to accept that and submit to that. So, you know, there's phrases like, he gives measures of faith. Phrases like that. And it talks about different gifts in the church and so on. So that's the idea. There's levels of, of knowledge. There's levels of um, wisdom and maturity. 
Those take place as you grow. But there are no levels of righteousness. There's one righteousness, and it's by imputation, it's by legal transfer, a charging positively of the merit of Christ to a person, and that is the same with all God's people. So as time goes on, the means of these things, the scripture, prayer, fellowship, and so on, is used. And the truth renews our minds by the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Through God's providences, it goes one step further. Through God's providences, puts us in circumstances whereby we have to face different experiences and circumstances through God's sovereign control. And, and this is what I mean when I talk about an application. We experience God's providences and we run through trials, tribulations, persecution, chastisement. And this is when, you know, before we might say, we look at this stuff on paper, right? I mean, I've studied the sovereignty of God for uh, even before I was converted, four and a half years before I was converted, and, and after I was converted, it's like almost almost 39 years studied in depth the sovereignty of God. Double predestination, superlapsarianism, anti-free offer, anti-common uh, grace, and all these things. And that's on paper, right? And then you see how God is sovereign, then it extends to his providence. He creates, and he's sovereign uh, over that creation. He controls it. And we can read all that about on paper. We can memorize it. We can teach it. We can spit it out. But when God gets you in a trial, in a tribulation, or persecution, or chastisement, it's no longer on paper. <laughs> it's in real time. That's where the rubber meets the road. And that these things test our faith, and these are the things that develop in God's people patience and these things to where so that when we deal with other people, it does several things to it. It humbles us. That's the topic today. It humbles us. But it shows us how that we should be humble toward other people. And we should have compassion and care and patience and love toward other people because he puts us through these things and we can help other people bear up their burdens and so on and show love and compassion for the people that maybe have gone through things that we have experienced. And maybe they can do that same thing to us. And so this is the idea. God knows what he's doing. Everything's right on schedule. And uh, again, we're not in control of God's providence. We don't know, we don't know what's going on in the next minute, right? Remember there, it's in the book of James, you don't have to turn there, I think it's around chapter 4, toward the end somewhere, it says, um, hey, don't be boasting about saying you're going to go into such a city and you're going to buy and sell and make gain, you know, like start a business, be an entrepreneur and be rich. But you should rather say, if the Lord wills, I will do this and that. So when we talk about things, we should always have in the, not in the back of our mind, in the forefront of our mind, yeah, we're planning on doing something here in a couple months, if the Lord wills, because you know I might die today. You might die today. We don't control that. So these things should be constantly on our mind, and to keep us in check, keep us humble, keep us dependent. Every I need thee every hour. The songwriter wrote. So that's the idea, and that's what I want us to see today in two things: in salvation, and one with another. I pray that you apply this personally. We're going to see what Isaiah saw in a vision, but I want to ask you, have you seen this same vision through the means of the word, the word spoken, the word written, coming into your heart and mind 
And have you embraced it? Have you agreed with it? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you love it? And so what I didn't want us to think of when we talk about experience, when I talk about experiencing the truth, first of all, there's a fact that the truth has been around long before we came along. If we say something against the truth, we don't affect the truth. What does that do? It just makes us a liar. The truth doesn't change. We just hit against it. We bump off of it, right? So there's no fear there in the truth being overrun. We know that truth is there. We're called to defend the truth, of course. Also, God Almighty himself is not on trial. And people do not sit over him in judgment using their experience to judge the truth. So this is the danger. This is what I want to talk about and expose when certain people talk about experiencing the truth or experiencing God or whatever. I'm referring to just a conscious awareness through the power of the Spirit, through the means of the Word, and it's applied to our minds and we embrace it through faith. In other words, there are some uh, fatalists or hypocalvinists that would say that people are regenerated, they go through life, and they end up getting to heaven. They didn't even know they were converted. That's ridiculous. You know? So there are those extremes. And then you have you know, the charismatic movement, and they say you're not saved unless there's this ecstatic experience and these goosebumps and feelings, and the experiences vary denomination to denomination. But people don't sit over God as a judge and judge the truth by their experience. Somebody wants to give their testimony. They give it in connection to the authority of the word of God that they embraced. They don't infuse their experience and change the word of God. But the word of God dictates whether their experience is true or not. That's the difference. So this morning, let's look at uh, the prophet Isaiah, what he saw, what he wrote about on the inspiration of the spirit of God here. And we could use it as a means to grow. And again, it should be a familiar text to you. And what we want to see in here, we want to focus on humility. God humbling a person. And he humbles every one of his people at regeneration and conversion. And again, apply this apply this personally. Where You remember, it, Isaiah said, who had believed our report? Right? Paul repeats that in, in Romans 10. I want to ask you, do you believe this report today? Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is like 3,246 years after creation from what I understand. And he says, I, Isaiah speaking, I saw, and this was in a vision. We know in the Old Testament, the truth is communicated through visions, dreams, audible speaking, and so on. But here he saw, through a vision, the following. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Now, you can turn there if you want. There's four verses in John 12:40 that's very much related to this text. Part of what is in our text is quoted here, and it kind of zeroes in on who we can specifically see seated on the throne. John 12:40. I didn't really have the time to get a bunch of context before. But he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. 
Isaiah said these things when he saw his glory, speaking of the Lord, and spoke of him. Still, however, even out of the rulers, many not, did not believe him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For or because they loved the glory of men more than the glory of God. So here's a, a New Testament witness concerning the same quote of this text in Isaiah 6. And we see that it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Son of God sitting on the throne. And of course a throne is um, the seat of sovereign power, authority, and control. This is a consecrated or a sanctified place as opposed to uh, anything else. This is not something that anybody saw. Isaiah didn't see this every day. This was a vision given to Isaiah, and you're going to see the effect of it here in a little while, how it affected him. So thinking in the vein of thought that we're talking about this one, this sovereign God, sitting on his throne of power, authority, and control. This is no ordinary thing. This is not common at all. Nothing about God is common. So I'm starting to see what Isaiah saw here. If God has given you at least a glimpse of some of this, at least just a glimpse, then it will actually affect you in a humbling way. I mean, that's what we should crave, some effect, right? We want God to be the cause. We want the word to be the means. Through the power of the Spirit, we want to be affected so that we can live our life and honor this one that is seated on the throne. We want to be affected in a, in a humbling way. So this throne is said here to be high and lifted up. And this is because the one that sits on the throne is to be seen as high and lifted up. Is to be seen as as we see him, understand him, as God reveals the truth of, of all his character attributes to us. Again, the furthest thing from common is what we see. We see extraordinary. We see holy, separate, perfect. I mean, you could go on and on and on with the descriptions of like he is other than us. And therefore, he is to be approached a certain way. When we see him like this, I mean, we could give we could give earthly examples that would would pale in comparison, but I think you got to start somewhere. You know, if you're driving too fast, you're speeding, and all you see those blue lights. What happens? You let off the gas, and you get this feeling in your legs, and your heart goes do 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 do. That's just a police officer. We're talking about God, right? You could give other examples of authority, and it's like, oh, I'm in trouble, <laughs> right? You approach a court where maybe, even if you didn't do something on purpose, even if you did something in ignorance, you're still in court. There's authority. You know, if you don't have a representative or you're just going in blindly, you could be in trouble. You could face some fines. Who knows? Even if something was done accidentally, this is God Almighty. It's a different story. And of course, toward the end, we're going to talk about you better have a you better have a lawyer here. 
you know, when you deal with God Almighty. So he's high and lifted up. So we're given an understanding of that through his word. And we are, right away, we have a view of this true God not only results in humility, it not only does that, but as it humbles us, there's another effect in God's people. And they're exhorted to do this in the scripture. We're exhorted to sanctify or set him apart in our hearts. Right? It has to do with how we talk about him, what we call him, how that when teachers teach about him, or if you're witnessing how you're talking to other people, this is like holy ground. You don't this is you don't use his name flippantly. The more you know about him, the more you should honor and respect and reverence him and his name. Some people think about what's commonly considered cursing or cussing, or that would say GD. Well, there's all kinds of other ways. There's, there's just talking about him not as highly as you should. People are in pulpits right now preaching a false gospel. They would never dare say GD, but they're using his name in vain right now. Right now. Remember the guy in Matthew 7 that was used as an example. He said, but Lord, Lord, haven't I done this and that and the other? Christ said, depart from me, you work iniquity. You know, even right there at judgment, he used his name in vain. He used his name in vain all of his life, prophesying in his name and so on. There are other subtle ways, and this generation seems like it's it's getting worse and worse for this. His name is abused, and people just and it's commonly on TV and radio and, and, and everywhere, workplaces, school, and everything. When people say, "Oh my God," flippant use, just a filler word. Some of these people would never say "GD," but just they use the name so often it has become common in their minds. They need a vision of this right here, what Isaiah saw. So this view should, again, humble us and then cause us to separate him apart in our minds from any other person in the universe. I mean, this one is so much separated and set apart that we worship him. We not only set aside time a little bit on a day like today, but we should be worshiping him every waking hour. He goes on to say his train filled the temple. Uh, a train is like something that hangs down, it's trim like a skirt or a hem. You know, I'm thinking, the first thing I've always thought about when I looked at this historically, I haven't dove deep into this word and looked at it, but you know, you think of a, of a, a bride with the dragging wedding garment, and uh, you see it, you know, the effect, and it's part of the dress that has to do with the one wearing the dress the bride in, in that example. You know, also, I've always also thought about when a boat goes through the water and it, what it causes, the effects, and then you see sometimes a jet when it goes so fast, the speed of it, there's stuff coming off the wings, right? It even does something in the sound. The sound barrier breaks too also. The effect of something. Sometimes uh, certain bullets go so fast, they're small, but when they go in you, it is, it is what comes behind it. It is the vacuum of the speed of that bullet that makes the hole so big. These are effects 
here this train is just the whole the whole effect that, that comes off of God and the glory of his holiness and his attributes just springing forth of who he is, what he does, and, and how separate and how high he is. And when he's revealed just a little bit, there is an effect. Remember when Christ was getting ready to be taken away and they came with they came to get him. Judas was with these soldiers and uh, a big mob of people. And they were carrying all kinds of stuff, lanterns and staves and weapons and stuff. And um, they asked concerning Christ. And Christ said, I am he. He said in there, he said, I am. Right? What happened? What was the effect? <laughs> Fell over his dead. I, if I remember right, it happened a second time right after that. It is kind of weird. It's almost like a movie. You've seen movies at times where something happens, and in the movie everything freezes, and there might be a couple people talking, looking at these frozen people. It's kind of weird looking at that, where these people fell down, they got back up. It's like, didn't you catch what happened? <laughs> happens again. They don't see him like this. They don't know, right? God's people have been shown this to a certain extent, but they have been shown it. And then, of course, like we said, we grow in it. So we want, we're craving, we're craving more of a glimpse. Sometimes we want more than a glimpse, you know. God gives us what we can take. Verse 2. Above it, above this throne, stood seraphims. And one each had six wings. With two covered his face. With two covered his feet. And with two he did fly. Doesn't necessarily say how many there are here. Some people just generically call these angels or whatever. It doesn't matter. I know people have idolatrous views coming from paintings and stuff. That can kind of get out of hand. But let's just look and see what it says here about what it's trying to show us here. First of all, it just it's not two wings to fly with, period. There's two others. And notice two cover the eyes. And I think it has to do with this extreme view of the presence of God and his holiness and, and these created beings who were created for the specific purpose to do this and I believe it's all the time I would imagine they're still doing this because he's worthy of it and then the others covering his feet whenever I've talked about this to our congregation I was reminded I'm always reminded, I think back, it was impactful when I was a youngster watching scary movies where I would, I would bring my feet up from down on the floor and put it on the couch and tuck my blankets under my feet because of fear. I didn't know what was down there, right? And then, of course, when you get real scared, you put covers over your, your eyes. And a piece of cotton is supposed to protect you, right? We didn't know as kids. Well, here, I would think it's kind of the same idea. And this is why these wings were created. And you think God did that by mistake? And he knows what he's doing here. And it says that they flew around the throne. And, and this, this suited God's purpose, that they flew around this high throne of the Lord. So don't you think there was some, some godly fear in these seraphims? And by the way, you think these seraphims had any sin? I don't think they sinned. 
I would think that these are part of these angels that did not fall. So they could see this. They were there all the time. Verse 3, And one cried. Now, this idea of cry, it's not, in other words, he didn't whisper. And, and you'll see a little bit later in the description, it was not a whisper. It was kind of loud. Cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Of course, it seems obvious that um, we talk about the thrice holy God. We know about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say, Is the Lord of hosts. And then it says the whole earth is full of his glory. So the one seraphim was declaring the Lord's perfect consecrated character here. And so this is the true God. And the true God, what have you noticed in the Old Testament, especially story after story after story, we see the truth declared concerning how that God seems to love to make distinctions between himself and idols. He's always doing it. He'll make fun at the fact that they're deaf, dumb, and blind idols. And in some spots it talks about <laughs> to people, he said, you got to take these things and move them around and set them up. Put them on your shoulder. It's a heavy burden. These are your gods and they can't even move? You have to move them? You would think these people would be at least intellectually smart enough to see, if i got to move these things and set them up, maybe I'm God. Some people think that anyway, but do you see what religion does to the mind? It dumbs people down, right? So God Almighty, he also makes distinctions between himself and mankind. What has he said before? Uh, I believe it was in the Psalms. He said, you know, you thought I was altogether like unto yourself. Because that's what man does. He creates an idol of imagination. It's, it's kind of like himself. He might be like a buffet, might make him stronger over here, but he has to make him able to control this God because, of course, his will trumps God's will. And, and God said, you, wrong one. You thought I was like you. I'm not. So the seraphim uh, also cried concerning this one on the high throne. He, he called him the Lord of hosts. He gave him that title. And we know that he is the Lord of, Lord of all. He is sovereign Lord. And he's the king of kings and Lord of lords. We, that's a basic idea. So we, are, we should quickly be put in our place when we start seeing these things. And these, these things are starting in the text. They're starting to compound. And um, we have to keep that in mind. It says that the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, whether the inhabitants of the earth, the sinful inhabitants of the earth, are willing to acknowledge it or not, the glory of the Lord is there. Right? We know that he himself is said to be the invisible God. Right? And... He is also omnipresent. It means he's in all places at all times. And because of that, we know that we are dependent on these glimpses here as described by the prophet Isaiah. God graciously had it recorded for us so that we can read it and that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It comes to us in our minds with an understanding and we can embrace it. 
We presuppose everything in the scripture is written is true because the God of truth said it, and we embrace it by faith. So we know his glory is manifest in creation. Scripture says that, that creation declares his glory. We know that it says that he controls his creation. He upholds all, thing by, all things by the word of his power. By him all things consist. So there's that creation and control of that creation. And all this is backed by this holy and glorious one spoken of who is on this throne right now where these seraphims are flying around and declaring things about this one. So further, he makes this known concerning what he himself says about himself. Again, that's just the word of God, right? We see what people say about God. We see about what the seraphims are saying about God. But God declares things concerning himself in his word. And he's pretty particular about it. And God's people should be humbled to the point where they need to follow. And like, let's be careful here in how we deal with the truth, what we say about God. We only say what he said about himself. And, of course, we see that through the eyes of faith. So, question again. Do you think Isaiah here is starting to be humbled here yet? And are you getting a glimpse of this one, the Lord of hosts, on his high throne? He goes on to say in verse 4, And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, again, this is no ordinary thing. It's not a common thing. This is an extraordinary, this is a supernatural thing. This is something you don't see every day or even once in a lifetime, right? And Isaiah is seeing it as kind of a once in a lifetime thing and it's boom in his face. So notice that the voice of this uh, powerful seraphim that was created for this purpose to do this, who was declaring these things about the Lord. And again, he is without sin. And he was boldly crying these things concerning the truth of God Almighty. Now, we know historically, we can, we can read all kind of texts that tell us about how God communicated in the Old Testament. And it was in a, in a scary way. And the people were scared of his voice. And it says, you know, we can cut to the chase. If you want to turn there, Hebrews 12 talks about this. It talks about when he spoke on earth, it shook the earth. And you remember the people, they were scared and they, you know, Moses, can you deal with him? Because we can't, we can't deal with it. We need, and of course, that's a type and a picture, a shadow of a mediator, right? So Moses had to deal with God. And in Hebrews 12, let's pick up in uh, verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. Now, let me, let me stop for Remember, this is the seraphim in our text that made these pillars shake, that was crying truth about the Lord. Now I want to talk about the Lord here, what's going to happen, referring to the one that's sitting on the throne that the seraphim was talking about. So in other words, what I'm talking about in at the end, you think the vision there of Isaiah was astringent and, you know, like serious? In the end, I mean, it's, his voice is going to make it all over. When I say over, I don't mean every place. It will be every place, but I mean done. He's going to destroy the earth. Part of the means is his voice. 
Look at verse 26. Whose voice then, referring to Old Covenant time, shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more again I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as the things that have been made, so that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So everything that can be shaken, what's that mean? Physical, material things you can see with your senses that have been created or made by men, it's going to be wiped out because God is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. So as men walk by sight, the things that they can see by sight, it's going to be gone. So that the things that remain are things that can't be shaken, which also means they can't be seen. And these are the spiritual things. These are the eternal things. Right? These are the things that our faith that God has given us have been vested in. And so our hope is not on these things that we can see. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We walk by what God says about himself and what he has done. And that's our hope. We have a promise of something future that doesn't have to do with these things that we're looking at. They're these little kingdoms that men build. I'm not just talking about political kingdoms. You know, I'm talking about maybe this little mulch area and these rocks and stuff I did in my yard. You know what I mean? Don't spend too much time on that stuff. It's going to be gone. Don't get too tied down and anchored down in this world because this world is going to be destroyed with fire, as we're going to see here in a second. Verse 28. Therefore, because of what was just said, the comparison of the how God dealt with uh, people in, in this scary way in the Old Testament, and it seems like it's going to be a little bit more scarier when Christ deals with them. And, and let, me, let me add this. It says that he spoke in the Old Covenant times. I remember reading a text in the New Testament that says that he's going to descend with a shout. I don't, I don't know that he's ever shouted before. You see maybe an idea why the earth may be destroyed? Him shouting and shaking and removing. There's fire. This is a scary time if you don't have a substitute and a mediator and a representative. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace. I mean, you've you got to have that, or you, you're not even in. We need grace, and we also, as a result, be humbled so that we can show grace. By which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For because also our God is a consuming fire. We read in the scripture how that in the end, the earth is going uh, to burn with a fervent heat. Of course, we know the Lord is not willing that any of his people should perish, and they're not going to. He's going to save all his people before he destroys this world of the things that you can see. And in the meantime, people just walking around la-di-da, you know, using his name in vain. Just outward immorality using his name in vain, and in religion using his name in vain. 
And I think you could take the sum total of the scripture and what's more offensive and what is, is more blasphemous is the religion side of it. So here's the question. Are these truths affecting anyone yet here in reference to your, your posture of humility, reverence, respect, honor? I mean, that's what the, that verse that we had just read there in Hebrews, the desired goal is that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's referring to respect and honor and so on because of who he is. Verse 5 of the text in Isaiah 6. And then I, speaking of Isaiah, said, Woe is me, because I'm, not, I'm undone. <clears throat> Woe is me, I am undone. Undone has to be with, um, to, to be silent, to fail, to, to be cut down or cut off, to cease. I mean, you might see maybe professional fighters or something. I mean, all these examples always come short. Uh, UFC or something, somebody's wrestling, they've got somebody in a hold, and you can see that arm is about ready to snap. And what's the guy do? He taps the guy on the leg. Stop. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I give up. Uh, uncle, whatever, those type of things. Somebody sticks a gun in somebody's face. They put their hands up. It's a submissive. I'm, hey, you win. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I want to be away from you, right? There's a, some form of a fear. Here, it's a, it's a personal thing with uh, Isaiah. It, how he saw the Lord high and lifted up, it, it had an effect. And the first thing out of his mouth is, woe is me, because I'm undone. Now, so we start to see the effect here, the, the desired effect, the purposed effect by God. And he does this all, to all of his people. And again, as we read this, there should be some personal application from all the ones here hearing this. We should have a personal effect. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. So here's the part of the particular application of personally saying, I am this one that has these unclean lips, which means defiled or polluted, right? Of course, we know man by nature, he has a defiled, polluted natural conscience. And out of, the, out of that heart, we know that out of the heart speaks the mouth of what's in the heart, right? And the lips are involved in the mouth, and what comes out is I, I, me, myself, and I, free will, I do this, and I agree, religion, 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 works, and so on. So, he goes on to say, And I dwell in the midst, or the middle of, a people of unclean lips. He recognized it in himself, and, and because he did, he recognized, well, this is going on all over the place. This must be our nature, right? This must be spread like wildfire. It's all over the place. We're a people of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. And there's a Lord high and lifted up. And, he, and just the seraphims that are going around him are speaking and shaking. You can imagine when this Lord that is on the throne is going to do something that is considered maybe abrasive or uh, aggressive, how the people are going to respond. 
they don't want to deal with this kind of Lord high and lifted up because of their sin, because of who they are. So we see a universal application here of a, a, a people in the midst of a people. So when God comes to his people individually and, and gives them faith to believe the gospel, he reveals by his spirit, one that has been born again, he reveals by his spirit something, and it causes his people to stop and to say generally that same idea, woe is me because I'm undone. I see my sin, I see my guilt. And what is the what is the application of the effect and the application of that? They stop, they're caused to stop, surrender, submit, and they now have this new idea for the very first time. No confidence in the flesh. Right? That's what Paul said, for example, in uh, Philippians 3. That's one, of the, that's one of the evidences of God's people. There were three listed in, I think it's Philippians 3.3, 3, and one of them is no confidence in the flesh. So total depravity, we know the doctrine of total depravity shows these various forms of death. And when we see that, when we're shown that, it should, again, have the effect of, woe is me, I'm undone. Humility. We see, especially when we see the absolute sovereignty of God involved in total depravity. Some people can just like look at total depravity in an academic way, removed from the person of God and his absolute sovereignty. I think it's more offensive when you see it in terms of the absolute sovereignty of God. I think God did that on purpose. Here are some of the aspects of it. We know that when God spoke of death, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. We know that he, Adam didn't fall over right there physically. He may have started to die. But the first aspect of death is the declaration of legal condemnation. It was, a, it was God judging Adam as legally condemned, right? And so, as Adam was the federal head and representative of the human race, that sin, of course, was imputed to every person after Adam. So, legal is primary. Again, sovereignty of God. Every single person in the world that's ever been born had Adam's sin imputed to him. Did God ask them about that? Hey, do you want to sign up for this imputation of death and condemnation? No, he didn't. He's sovereign. He decided this in eternity. Purposed it for a greater glory, the glory of God in the death of Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that's what it is. But legal first, spiritual corruption second. It's really the fruit of the legal. We see that man in all the corruption and all of his inabilities, the part of total depravity that shows that. Moral corruption and again, religious sins, religious corruption, and perversion, uh, blinded by self-righteousness. And this is like leaning on the arm of the flesh. And the result is going to judgment and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this, that, and other? It's going to fail. It's going to be a fail. And of course, later, physical death, eventual physical death, and before physical death, all the ailments. I mean, anybody that is older, well, I think I'm the old. Me and my wife are the oldest ones in the room, but there's some ailments going on, and 
some of us, my knees are killing me right now, have different aches and pains, and eventually there's physical death. We see the effects even in uh, creation, you know, thorns and thistles and briars and rust and all these things. And then we just read and how that that's going to, all that stuff's going to be destroyed, all these things. And then, of course, for the non-elect, eternal death. Now, when we see all those aspects and we know that he has chosen in his sovereignty to separate certain people, to not be condemned, to not be eternally punished. What should that do? Should that puff up believers and say, yeah, too bad for you other people. I've got it covered. No, it doesn't. We know it doesn't work that way. It's a, it's a humbling thing when we, when we see these things and it's brought to our heart. The effect is a humbling thing. And the more you learn about it, I always tell our congregation as far as growth, when we grow, we grow down in humility. That's the way God grows his people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So that's what Isaiah said there too about who he saw there, high and lifted up on the throne. We're kind of running out of time. It goes on to say about these seraphims taking the coal, and, and this, is a, this is a picture of the, the taking away of sin, the taking away of the transgressions that are against this holy and high one that is lifted up. And it says your, your sin is purged, right? Which means uh, it's cleaned. It's completely cleaned out. Some people might be familiar with industrial piping or different things. You know, talk about people purging a line. It's cleaning the line out, right? It's what you use Drano for, or you, you know, if that's not good enough, you put pressurized, and you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't get the clog out, you're gonna you're gonna clean it out somehow. You're gonna blow up the pipe, you know. It's purged. The problem is gone. This is what this one that is high and lifted up, as he condescended down. And he took on flesh and he was born of a woman under the law and he obeyed that law in every jot and tittle. He came to fulfill that law. He obeyed that law as a substitute and as a representative for his people. Not just the letter of the law, the will, the intent, everything about it, his whole attitude concerning. And he did it out of love for his father and as he was obeying in the place of his people. And then he went to the cross. And then he had already covenanted with the Father to agree to take on the sin of his people. All the sins of all of his people, his elect, were transferred to his account, were charged to his account legally. And he was then declared to be guilty for the sins of someone else, the ones that he loved, his people. The Father as we sang the song a second ago, in that song it talked about the stroke that was the worst stroke was the stroke of justice from the hands of the Father. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, Isaiah 53, 10. God shut the lights out, right? I mean, you saw the intensity here of Isaiah seeing this. Can you imagine if 
it was it was opened up and the lights were on. We know that for the space of three hours, the lights were shut out so that we didn't see the interaction between the father and son. If that could be seen, I would imagine nobody could live seeing it. And, and maybe after we are without sin in heaven, me as a human being now, I'm wanting to know what that what took place there. I want some details more. I mean, we know about all the theological jargon about propitiation and, and expiation, all these things. And again, it's on paper. I'm craving. You know, I don't want to see my relatives. You know, that's not. I'm I'm wanting to see what was accomplished at the cross. This is what we worship him for. That I see in the book of Revelation. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. It's all about his accomplished death. So that's what he did. He, he took on that sin. And he satisfied propitiation. He satisfied God's law and justice for all that sin. To the point to where that satisfaction. He knew that he had done enough. And it was measured. And he said it's finished. And then we know. He raised. And that merit, that whole work, we know, that is transferred to our account. And we're declared justified. And that we're in the state of no condemnation now, ever again. And sin can never be imputed to our account, ever. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. So all the accusations from the outside, from, from whoever, they're not going to fly. And it's not just people that will try to accuse you or try to say, no, you're charged with sin. No. Even God himself not only will not, but because of his justice, he cannot. He would be unfaithful to his own character. It would violate his promise. It would violate his purpose. And it's not like... He wishes he could, but he, he doesn't. He can't. It's not that. I mean, this was the purpose, right? This is the whole glory thing. This is what it's all about. It culminated in the accomplishment. So, in other words, righteousness demands justification, and gladly so. God loves showing mercy to his people. All these things should bring us to the dust. And every, all these little aspects, the deeper we study them, I mean, we're just going to have to get back out and just keep digging deeper and get further down in the dust. This is what it does, and it's good for us. And this should be the goal. This is what we want. We want more than a glimpse. We want to continue to see more and more and more. And we want it to affect us in a positive way so that we can turn around and minister to, to people. Not only the brothers and sisters in Christ, but those we talk to and evangelize and, and mix it up with every day. Um, we want them to see that we don't see ourselves more highly than we ought. Like Paul warned in several different New Testament books. And we know that sometimes believers can kind of slip out of that attitude and maybe get a kind of a weird attitude. God fixes that by trials tribulations, chastisement, so that there, is, there are peaceable fruits of righteousness that come out on the other side, and then we can deal with people the way that we should deal with people. So with any text, I think any teacher knows that you could speak for weeks and weeks and weeks on it, but I'm going to stop there, and I pray that uh, 
some of these truths here that we saw in the text were edifying and that God would be pleased to, to apply them to your minds and, and your life as you walk in faith. Thanks again for having me.